Hello, and welcome to another episode of EDS at Union Now. On Monday, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced that the Department of Justice is creating a new Religious Liberty Task Force. This task force will challenge what Mr. Sessions has called a dangerous movement to erode the U.S.'s great tradition of religious freedom. Dean Kelly Brown Douglas was fortunate to discuss this new task force with the Reverend Dr. Patrick Chang, Associate Rector at the Church of the Transfiguration in Midtown Manhattan, who is both a theologian and a lawyer. This conversation will help us understand the history of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and how the Trump administration is using faith as a tool for oppression. If you are enjoying EDS at Union Now, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and let us know what you think by leaving a review. And with that, I leave it to Dean Douglas for her conversation with the Reverend Chang. I'm Kelly Brown Douglas, the Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union in New York City, and I am pleased to be joined by Dr. the Reverend Dr. Uh, Patrick Chang, who is a priest in the Episcopal Church, but also a lawyer, former editor of the Harvard Law Review, and a clerk for a federate appellate uh, judge who specialized in constitutional law. Is that right, Patrick? Sure. Uh, just uh, what, what a lot of, uh, well, what federal judges do right, in terms of interpreting the Constitution. That's right. Great. Well, I can think of no better time to be in conversation with you than on this day, two days after our Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, called for the Task Force on Religious Liberty. Many have spoken out against this task force. In fact, many voices from the secular community have spoken out, as well as progressive voices in the legal community, namely the uh, ACLU and others. We're here today to try to understand a little bit more about the implications of this religious task force, not only legally, but otherwise, and what that might mean for quote-unquote, the progressive faith community. But before we can do that, what's the legal foundation? The Attorney General continues to say to us that their goal is to protect this whole issue of the uh, disestablishment cause and the freedom of religion. As a lawyer, can you help us understand that? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, just two days after the announcement of this uh, Religious Liberty Task Force, I think a lot of folks are still trying to figure out what does this mean, and it is still early on. Uh, I think to understand this, you have to go back to last year. Mm -hmm. So this isn't something that just came out of nowhere. Um, Last May, over a year ago, uh, the president had an executive order um, that uh, directed the attorney general to issue guidance on religious liberty. And out of that came two memos that were written in October of last year. Okay, And I'm mentioning all this because uh, if you really want to get to the heart of this, um, these October memos are really important. And Mm -hmm. the audience can, you can just Google that. But basically in October, um, the Attorney General came out with one memo that had 20 key principles about religious liberty. It's a wonderful primer on the administration's views on, uh, you know, sort of uh, on religious liberty. And then there was another memo that was called the Implementation Memo that 
the first memo applied to all of the federal departments and agencies, and the implementation memo actually had it apply to the Department of Justice. Okay, hmm. and so once it applied, you know, fast forward to two days ago, this task force was announced in order to implement what was in those memos. Right. So, so, and in particular, with the focus on the Department of Justice. So, all the cases that they're litigating, you know, the instruction, the the, the role of the task force is to make sure that those twenty principles are reflected in the position of the United States government in litigation, um, as well as uh, you know, in terms of novel issues that come up. And can you give us an idea, uh, sort of, and uh, some. What, what are those 20 principles really pointing to? Because we know, of course, at the heart of this matter uh, is not simply this issue of protection of religious freedom and the separation of church and state, which in many respects are two different things, but also what prompted this or which the Attorney General continued to speak about was the case of, of the baker that did not want to have to bake a cake uh, (laughs) for a same uh, gendered couple. And so that seems to be the catalyst for this concern Mm. of protection of certain rights. So what's the relationship Mm. between that and these 20 principles? Mm -hmm. Because, of course, as you said, this doesn't operate in a vacuum. Uh, It's not suddenly a concern that everybody's religious freedoms are being impinged upon by secular society? Yeah, it's a really good question. And in fact, um, the baker, uh, Jack Phillips, that was in this masterpiece Mm -hmm. cake shop case, uh, was actually present at the press conference. That's right. And was sort of uh, cited by the attorney general. And also uh, there was uh, an archbishop in the Roman Catholic Church um, sort of alluding to... Uh, sort of adoption agencies and, and, you know, what principles govern that. But uh, you're absolutely right that this is an issue that is very much uh, of timely import because uh, um, this whole religious freedom issue, you know, the, the 20 principles attempt to distill a lot of constitutional law about the First Amendment, which mm-hmm. uh, uh, mo- many folks know out there, uh, out there know that there is a establishment clause and a free exercise clause. The establishment clause says that the government cannot establish uh, religion in, in certain ways. And the free exercise clause, which a lot of these cases are about, ensures the rights of people of faith to be able to exercise their religion. Mm-hmm. So some of these uh, principles are saying that, you know, it's not just about what you believe or worship, but it can also apply to actions or refusals to act, right? And that's not an entirely obvious kind of thing because one of the earliest cases on the free exercise clause uh, was uh, Reynolds versus United States. It involved um, a person of the Mormon faith mm-hmm. that was challenging his conviction under an anti-polygamy law. All right, and, and he was saying, wait, I'm exercising my faith. And the Supreme Court held in that case that actually, no, that the free exercise clause is not a defense to that. And even in 1990, you may have heard of a very famous uh, peyote case, the Smith yes, case, yes, yes. Uh, where um, an individual uh, had lost his job because he had ingested peyote as part of a Native American ritual. 
and was turned down for unemployment benefits uh, and uh, challenged that, saying, you know, that I was exercising my free exercise. And again, the Supreme Court, uh, per Justice Scalia, which is somewhat surprising, actually said that, you know, uh, actually, no, it's a generally applicable law and uh, there is no carve out. And the point why I'm raising these issues is that the Supreme Court has never held that free exercise is unlimited, right? Because anyone could say, well, my (laughs) faith says I don't have to do X, Y, and Z, right? So the real issue is how do you find that balance? And yeah. It, yeah, and what what happens? I'm I'm struck by these cases that you uh, have mentioned because, in some respects, we began to see this conflict between what might, what some may perceive as a conflict between the free exercise of one's religious values and uh, civil rights. Correct. Uh, what happens when these two things conf- conflict? I'm I'm thinking of you know there were those who claimed that their religion supported the notion of chattel slavery Mm -hmm. uh, because their religious belief suggested that black people were of the devil. Or, or, or worse, if one could be worse. So how does how has the court adjudicated this? And uh, and so it seems to me that there's this kind of conflict, not in in some respects of what kind of nation, the identity of the nation, and this conflict between civil rights and free exercise on the one hand, and then. Uh, Patrick, I think of the Jack Phillips debate, right? Mm-hmm. And he says, I have a right because of my religion not to bake your cake. But then what about the persons who are coming to get their <laughs> baked cake right. uh, or their cake baked? They have a right as well to exercise freely their religious values, which suggests to them that they are sacred children of God and they are entitled to all the rights, liberties, uh there too. And so how, what do we do? Yeah, it's a great question. And so much about constitutional law is when you have these great principles that everyone agrees to, mm-hmm. you know, motherhood and apple pie, but <laughs> oftentimes when they uh, intersect or conflict, then, you know, it's the role of the courts to decide, well, how, how do I decide that, right? And, and so you raise a good point about sort of also alluding or maybe explicitly saying that, you know, these decisions aren't done in a vacuum or some medieval sort of, you know, just <laughs> logical sort of, you know, you put in sort of your principles and you come out with an answer, right? Because judges are people too. But, but I think, um, you know, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, this was in Colorado, and you had the baker, and you had two gay men wanting to have a cake, you know, to celebrate their marriage, and he did not do that, and it went all the way. And, and so when he refused to do this, uh, they filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, and so this got litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court. And it, at the end of the day, uh, Justice Kennedy, who has just announced his retirement, actually had written the main opinion and came out on the side of uh, the baker, mm-hmm. and it was of a 7-2 decision. Uh, what's interesting, you know, getting back to your point, is that in the opinion itself, it does say very clearly that uh, as a general rule that, you know, sort of uh, uh, general civil rights or public accommodation statutes, uh, there is no absolute right free, you know, for religious carve-out, if mm-hmm. you will. And I think that the courts, um, 
the cases I talked about earlier generally have this notion that if it's a generally applicable law, as long as it's not targeted to a religion, they're going to uphold the law, right? Because otherwise, you know, how do you look into someone's mind who says that my religion prohibits me from doing X, Y, and Z? You know, there's an interesting case uh, involving uh, animal sacrifice, for example, in yeah, the Santiago case, right. I think, and, and uh, where that actually the court said, no, the city that had the statute, even though it was worded sort of kind of neutrally, it was clearly targeted at a practice, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, some, some of your questions, I think there is this sense that if there's a targeting or animus, that's when the, the courts and the laws will say, uh, sorry, government, you're going too far. And that's, that's what, how Justice Kennedy came out. Um, some folks were hoping that the case would be resolved on First Amendment grounds, meaning that uh, they, they interpreted making a cake was free speech. But, but really, it was a fairly narrow holding where Justice Kennedy said, you know, there was animus, there was hostility at the level of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Mm-hmm. And he cited to their decision and their process. And it was on that basis that uh, they came out, you know, for the baker. It wasn't some general principle. But that being said, you know, cases are then later on, you know, other cases build on them. So it's uh, it definitely is something to, you know, to be continued. Well, I, I want to take up from this, mm-hmm. if there's targeting or animus, mm-hmm. then the courts may say you've gone too far. Mm-hmm. One of the things, it seems to me, that we have to understand here is that this call for a task force on religious liberty, uh, just as you stated, hasn't come out of nowhere. It's been, we've been moving toward it, even with, I guess, the repeal of the the Johnson Act, does it? Right. parishes or, or people, you know, sort of doing uh, election-related type things. That's right, and, yeah. and being able to do that and, and actually trying to then give certain a certain constituency the freedom to do that in the faith community, Christian faith community in particular. Uh, and then, of course, the memos, which you've talked about. But more, but more than that, all of this is a part of the wider narrative of making America, quote-unquote, great again. And we have come to see through the presidential bans, executive orders, the presidential rhetoric, we've come to see if we did not know it before through the campaign rhetoric, and many of us knew it through the campaign rhetoric, that making America great again is a euphemism for making America, quote unquote, white again and upholding a narrative that runs deep in our country's DNA, which is a narrative that I've called in many places a narrative of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism, but the narrative of white supremacy that, of course, comes into conflict with uh, the rhetoric of a nation that is for liberty, justice, and justice for all. And so, you know, there's a point where this country is going to have to decide what it stands for. But it seems to me, back to your point of whether or not it's targeting a particular group or an animus for a particular group. If we understand this call for religious task force to protect religious liberty in the context of an administration that is bound to make America great slash white again, then we have to recognize that we are indeed talking about something that is targeting 
a particular group of people or groups of people, and that indeed is reflective of an animus toward those who do not fit the criteria for what it means to be quote-unquote great or white in America, the criteria of a patriot. And we have, we have seen that as, of course, persons that come from uh, certain countries, people of color. And now we see that as, of course, LGBTQ people, because it's not, there's a history of relationship between conservative white evangelicalism and the pres- preservation of white supremacist values uh, in this country. There's a long history of relationship between uh, these two groups. So how are we to think about that? You know, how is it, you know, courts can't make these decisions in a vacuum. I'll get to the faith community. Right, we're, right, both, right. we're both faith leaders. But yeah. how do we to, how do the courts, how, how are we to think about that? This isn't happening in a vacuum. And right. there is an animus uh, toward a certain group of people. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's so relevant and important that you bring up the rhetoric of you know animus because uh, you know who is being persecuted, who is you right. know, sort of who is the animus directed at. I was thinking as I was looking over some of these materials that there is sort of this hidden sort of connection between race and mm-hmm. a, a lot of these issues in terms of even the jurisprudence, uh, the way that courts talk about. Um, striking down laws that are hostile to certain groups. There are different levels of um, scrutiny. So mm-hmm. uh, strict scrutiny is the highest, and usually it's you know reserved for racial discrimination. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that the Korematsu case, which was the uh, Japanese internment case, mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. the one case in which they upheld um, a discrimination on the basis of race uh, under the compelling yes. reason of right. national security. Okay, so but but. What is happening with these cases here is that the memos are saying that there is this federal statute, RIFRA, um, the Restoration of Free, uh, Freedom of Religion Act, uh, which was put into place after the Smith Peyote case. Mm-hmm. It was a bipartisan bill that actually said that you know if if a rule substantially burdens you know someone's free exercise, then it's up to the government to prove that it has to. There has to be a compelling interest to have that rule. So, in other words, they are taking the highest standard and right. applying it to religion. Okay? Right. But it's interesting because classifications on gender and on you know LGBT folks are you know inter- intermediate scrutiny or rational scrutiny. So, so in other words, that there are actually tiers based on classifications. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, what's going on here is very much sort of uh, raising the classification of religion, which is in the First Amendment anyway, right. um, but, but sort of using that as a way of sort of ensuring that policies, you know, that, that this is enforced in the way in which the administration is, is viewing them. But does this not then give people religious legitimation to discriminate? And so that you can say, you know what, I think those people are sinful people, uh, duh, and I don't want them in my store. Right. 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 And so forget about baking a cake for them. I don't want I don't want your kind in my store. And, you know, and and you say, wait a minute, you know, you're running a public business. Right. And so I have a right to be in your store. And that person says, no, because my religion, if you walk through that door, you're infringing upon my religious values. And so how so are we not giving right? Uh, religious legitimation 
to discrimination. And so we are restricting the movement and freedoms of certain peoples. And we are putting a religious canopy over that, right? Exactly. And, and, you know, sort of our mentors and, and the history... You know, folks, you know, like James Cone, you know, the, the whole notion of unmasking religious rhetoric and its right. connection with race. I mean, it's, you're absolutely right to uncover these different strands, right? Because on the face, we're talking about neutral principles and, and just we know that this them. works neutrally, right? right, right. But just in our conversation, all these interesting issues have come up, right? And, and so, um, so you're absolutely right that, that uh, you know, there are issues that are very much at stake here. For example, there are a lot of government regulations that uh, require non-discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation mm-hmm. that have been put in in previous administrations. And now, you know, applying this, the principles, you could say, well, th- those actually are a substantial burden on my free exercise. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you government cannot show that there's a compelling interest for them, so out it goes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you see how the argument mm-hmm. works? Uh, mm-hmm. um, the memos sort of use this, this uh, sort of Reasoning to to reinforce sort of uh, discrimination, if you will, and 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 so I think uh, I think that is why a lot of uh, you know progressive folks, uh, secular folks, um, you know, are are concerned about this. Uh, but I, I will say on the flip side, as a person of faith, uh, you know, I also don't want the government, you know, trying to determine whether my religious beliefs are truly held, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm saying it's important. Like in the masterpiece cake shop decision, it's good that there is language saying that sort of general non-discrimination for public accommodation, you know, there's not a general rule uh, uh, in terms of religious exemptions. Yeah, and I guess, and uh, yes, in general, no, I don't want the government saying, having uh, a say over my own religious values and religious beliefs, but one of the things that we have to understand and one of the things that sort of our mentors and mm-hmm. uh, theology has helped us have helped us to understand that none of these things function in a vacuum and so and neither does this and so we don't really and the laws we make are usually reflective right of a certain interest uh usually the interests of those in power right and so it's even as we read the constitution i'm always struck by the way in which uh, different lawyers and government officials will talk about uh, strict constitutionalists and right, right. Uh, original people, intent. Uh, original you know, intent. There's what? a reason why people want to go back to the 1700s, right? Right, right. But <laughs> no, no, but uh, yeah. th- that's right. And, and what do we mean by original intent? And as if right. we can read a document objectively, get an objective. There's no, anytime a human being gets engaged in anything, it's not objective. And so we bring our uh, own interests and our perceptions, we try to mitigate that, but we bring them to the document. And so I'm always, I'm always struck and amused, I guess one would say, how those who align themselves as up with conservative political views say that they're conserving mm-hmm. uh, the original intent and trying to read the Constitution objectively. Well, no, not really. And, and I was just... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was just saying, I was always so amused and struck by the parallels between law school and the philosophical schools, you know, of critical legal studies, um, you know, and the comparison to, to um, theological yes, reflection so. and, and liberation theologies, you know, versus sort of a more neutral view and, and the interpreting the Constitution versus interpreting the Bible. There well, are the so same, many things. Right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, 
that's a whole nother conversation. But, yes. but you know, it's wonderful that we're drawing out these. Uh, well, I would let's let's have that conversation uh, yeah. between yeah. interpreting the Constitution and the Bible. But here's what on, on this conversation. Yeah. So you know, legally, we might be in sort of no person's land, uh, and that there are all these conflicting interests and different ways in which one can view this. And but. You're not only a lawyer, you're a priest, and, 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 and I'm a priest, and we are part of a faith community, and we are a part of a church that has committed itself. We just came out of a two-week-long general That's convention, right? That's right, right. Yes. And the church, under our presiding bishop, yes. has committed itself to being builders of, nurturers of, embodies, embodying mm-hmm. the beloved community. Yes. So what does that mean? What is the implication for us, who we are to be in relationship to this religious liberty task force? Are we called to be members of that? Or are we called to stand fervently against that? It seems to me that there is a clearer mandate, perhaps for us, than there may be for those in the legal community. One part of our faith community is speaking loud and clear, and that's whose rights really are being protected, right? Uh, sort of uh, the a more fundamentalist evangelical wing of Christianity. But what are we to say? Yeah, that's, you know, one of the reasons why I love the Episcopal Church and so proud to be an Episcopal priest is that, you know, part of our baptismal covenant, right, is, is to respect the dignity of all human beings. Right. And, and that is just sort of a baseline for all those who are baptized, right? And, and to respect the dignity of all human beings, you may not agree with what people do, but does that mean that, that then one should turn one's back on people who, even if you see as quote-unquote sinful, I mean, I find it so interesting that the rhetoric is that no one questions, everyone sort of seems to assume that if you're Christian, then you're anti-LGBTQ. Right. right? But but if you look at the Bible and it's, you know, sort of what it says about the stranger and, and, you know, sort of what it says about welcoming the stranger and the widows and the orphans and, and, you know, even sort of you look at the text of terror for LGBT people, does it really talk about baking a cake or or (laughs) weddings? I mean, you know, there's none of that theological conversation. So, you know, Getting back to your point is that I think as people of faith, as progressive people of faith, we need to make sure that that we sort of uh, define the grounds of debate, right? That, that, That's that right. We can't just sort of assume that how it's set up is the way it is. Well, you know, I agree. I, I think that we have to take responsibility for the fact that our voices have not been on the public square. Mm. And there have been other voices on the public square. We have remained far too silent on this. And so that people are able to equate Christianity with sort of this anti-LGBTQ view, with this view that uh, we all want to run around imposing Merry Christmas on everybody. It's all a part of the same narrative. And in fact, uh, Jeff Sessions talked about, now we can say Merry Christmas again. In a nation that is supposed to respect all religious traditions, so, you know, it made me wonder, what if uh, they said everyone has to run around saying assalamu alaikum? I'm sure Jeff Sessions and then would have something different to say about that. And I think that we 
we are at fault, really, Patrick, mm-hmm. and that those of us who believe in the sacred dignity of all human beings, those of us who believe in the beloved community, need to speak out and give witness to a different understanding of the Christian gospel. And you know, when I when you talk about welcoming the stranger, yes, yes and all of that, but to me, there's even something more fundamental or just as fundamental, again, that is that every single human being that walks this earth and that has breath is indeed a child of God, whomever you call your God, right? And not only are they a child of God, but we believe that we are all created in the image of God. And so here's the thing to me, that if we know God, Patrick, through God's very creation, even God's human creation, if we are even going to get a glimpse of this great God that we can only get a glimpse of, right, the fullness of God, then we have to have an appreciation for the diverse realities of God's creation. Again, and, and so that every single human being reflects in some way in their own uniqueness, reflects in some way an aspect of the greatness and the fullness of who God is. And if in any way that we demean, that we degrade, that we disrespect, don't recognize the sacred dignity of another human being, we are degrading, demeaning, disrespecting God. And if that's the foundation from where we began, then it seems to me that those of us in the faith community need to have a lot more to say yes. about laws, particularly with religious sacred canopies and a Christian sacred canopy over it, that in any way devalues the dignity mm. of another human being. And I will say that, you know, sort of uh, oftentimes progressives are, you know, described as not having sin talk, if you will. But, right. but I think maybe rethinking sin in terms of being silent or complicit. That's, that's right. right. Or, or not taking our own <laughs> sort right. of, uh, uh, our right to, to sort of uh, articulate our vision of the fact that we are created in the image and likeness of God. And again, a plug for the Episcopal Anglican sense of incarnation, right? right. And that's so, what's right. so wonderful about the worship that you can smell, you can see, you can hear. Right. It, you know, our bodies matter. That's right. Our bodies matter. And, and so rather than having something to be fearful of, it is something that actually through our bodies that we are able to understand how much God loves us. That's right. Our bodies matter. We are embodied reflections yes. of God, and we are to be an embodied witness exactly. to who God is in the world because it matters, matters. that God entered into history. It matters. And, you know, we are an incarnate faith, and, and Episcopalians are significantly an incarnate uh, religion, and so it matters that God was incarnate, that God was embodied through Jesus. And, and our presiding bishop is calling us into the yeah, Jesus, Jesus movement. movement. Correct. Well, yeah, the yeah. Jesus movement is an embodied movement. That's right. You know, we are to move uh, with Jesus to where, where Jesus moved. And that's always toward this thing that we now understand as the beloved community. So I think we've probably, this is only the beginning of many other conversations. Patrick, you and I could go on forever, but I really want to thank you for bringing clarity 
to what's going on here from a legal vantage point and helping us all to understand even more the complexity of this issue, but at the same time, hopefully also uh, through this conversation, helping us all to recognize our responsibility uh, and uh, at least speaking out. Uh, on this issue. Thank you. Thank you, you, Dean Douglas, and uh, thank you for all the great work you're doing at EDS at Union. Well, thank you.